Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to bonus episode number six. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing two stories for you about wintry wrongdoings and altered animals. Both of them plumbed from the depths of my extensive audio archive. I sincerely hope you enjoy them and that you'll join me each and every Wednesday for more terrifying tales from my creep-filled crypt. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy even more tales from my archives, visit simplyscarypodcast.com 
and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today as a patron at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. There you'll get access to my audio archives dating back to 2012, including one-off stories and extended episodes of my podcast, all of them ad-free. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us courtesy of author Rebecca Klingle, perhaps better known in creepypasta circles as C.K. Walker, or on Reddit No Sleep, as the Dalek Emperor. In it, we'll meet a young man recollecting the winter night when, as a child, he and his cousins made a decision in the frozen Minnesota woods that would permanently alter the course of all of their lives. Without further ado, I present to you Rocking Horse Creek. My brother Teddy died December 11th, 1999, during our annual family Christmas party. He was 12 and I was 9. I wish I could say it wasn't my fault, but at the end of the day, the whole thing had been my idea. I'm from Woodbury, Minnesota, as is my entire extended family. Every Christmas, my parents would host a holiday party to eat, drink, and gossip. It was always a boring event, but I loved seeing all my cousins. The adults usually stuck as kids in the basement or the loft, but that year, my brother convinced them to let us go sledding at the park instead. We bundled up in our purple Vikings parkas and loaded up the sleds with blankets and our pockets with hand warmer packets. Then me, my brother, and our cousins, Mike and Jeff, set off at the sledding hill, which was about a half mile down the road. As soon as we were out of view of the house, Teddy stopped. You guys want to do something fun? he asked. Hell yeah, of course. I want to go sledding, I muttered. Yeah, well, sledding is for babies, said Jeff. And that's what I was thinking, too, his brother added. Teddy smiled. Good, because I want to take you guys somewhere way more awesome. Where are we going, I asked nervously. Mom and Dad will get mad if they look for us in the park and we're not there. They won't look. They're too drunk, Teddy laughed. But I think we should go to Rocking Horse Creek, he added coolly. Rocking Horse Creek was actually more of a small river than creek, but it had been called that for as long as I can remember. The creek had been named by neighborhood kids who found an almost life-sized rocking horse sitting abandoned and half-submerged in the water. No one knew where it had come from, as no one knew the actual name of the river because no one had ever been stupid enough to tell their parents that they went there. But Rocking Horse Creek is almost a half-hour walk from here, I whined. I was already cold and didn't feel like walking that far. Mike snorted. Don't be a baby. There are extra blankets, if you're cold, plus hand-warmer packets in your pockets. Yeah, Jeff added, and if you want, we can pull you along on the sled just like the baby you are. Mike and Jeff laughed, but Teddy didn't, and he punched Jeff in the arm. Stop it, you guys. I'm not a baby. And why go to the creek anyway? It's probably ice. Because it'll look hella cool, Teddy said. Yeah, I want to go, said Mike. We could tie our jacket strings to some sticks and go ice fishing. Yeah, 
Well, I'm really good at ice fishing, I lied, so I have to go so I can help you. Sure you are, Jeff rolled his eyes. The walk didn't take an hour. It was more like 35 minutes, though it did feel longer due to the cold. When we approached, we saw that the river was indeed frozen over. The ice looked several feet thick, though it was hard to tell. Mike and Jeff were really excited about it and kept testing their weight on the thinner ice of the riverbank. I sat down on my sled and drew a couple of blankets around me. I'm smaller than them, so I'm colder, I justified to myself. Ted, Mike, and Jeff stood on the riverbank and threw rocks onto the ice to see if they could break it. When they failed to produce even the smallest crack, Jeff announced it was time to play Ricochet Dare. I hated Ricochet Dare. As soon as Jeff suggested it, I felt a cold stone drop in the pit of my stomach. Ricochet Dare was something we'd been playing since we were little kids. The rule stated that if you dared to do something and you didn't do it, the game would end and you would be the new wuss. And this ridicule would go on for weeks or even months. However, if you did go do it, and then you got to dare someone in return. Generally, the dares start off mild, but with every round the stakes get higher. The game would only end when someone inevitably wussed out, and of course, that person was usually me. But not this time, I thought, as I shrugged off my blankets and stood up, pushing my hat up from my eyes. I had to redeem myself and make Teddy proud. I had to show them I wasn't a baby. "'Come on!' Jeff yelled at me. "'You go first. "'Okay. What's the dare?' I asked with false bravado. "'Hmm,' Jeff said. "'Okay, you have to take three steps out onto the ice.' I eyed the frozen river warily. Three steps?' "'Yep, and not baby steps. Real steps.' "'Stop it. I'm not a baby.' "'Then prove it.' I took my first step lightly and paid close attention to the give of the slippery mass beneath me. There was none that I could feel, and the ice made no sound of protest underneath my feet. I took the two last steps quickly, then turned around and half-skated back to shore. My brother gave me a huge smile and a high-five. I dared Mike to take four and a half steps. Mike dared Ted to do six steps. Ted dared Jeff to do ten steps. And then Jeff dared me to walk all the way to the opposite shore. The ice hadn't made a sound since we started the game, instead remaining as silent as death. Still, there was something unsettling stringing through the cold air and in the silence. I stalled for as long as I could, trying to decide if I should complain. Jeff's dare was actually two dares, and I didn't think that was fair. Technically, I would have to do it twice, once to get to the opposite shore and once to get back. I was afraid of falling through to the cold water I knew was raging by under the ice. Come on, don't be a baby, just do it, Mike said. Little baby baby, afraid of the icy-wicy, Jeff mocked. Stop it, you guys, I'm not a baby. This dare isn't fair. It's two dares. My voice was drowned out by Jeff and Mike's mock baby cries. I looked at Teddy for help, but he was laughing. Laughing. My older brother didn't even attempt to stick up for me. He was joining in with them. I felt my lower lip wobble and tears filled my eyes. Don't cry. Babies cry. You're not a baby. 
I jerked my head back to the river so they couldn't see my red face and traitorous tears. I felt a sob begin to bubble up through my throat, and I knew I couldn't let them hear it. I would die before I let them see me cry. I took a deep breath and ran across the ice as fast as I could, and for a moment I actually hoped I did fall through. They would be in so much trouble, and they would feel so sorry that they'd made fun of me and called me a baby. With every slap of my foot, I listened for the telltale sound of cracking ice, but none came, and before I knew it, I was on the other side. I raised my fists in the air triumphantly and waited for the cheers. When I turned to look back, they were still standing in a circle together, laughing. They hadn't even been watching me. They missed the entire dare and I wanted to cry all over again. I swallowed the tears and was about to yell that I wanted to go home, but just then I noticed something dangling from the tree above them. How had I forgotten? I was the only one who had noticed it, and I realized it was my ticket to revenge and redemption. But who to dare? I stood silently watching them as they joked with each other and pointed at each of them in turn, silently mouthing to myself... Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a tiger by the toe. If he hollers, let him go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. My finger landed on Teddy. Good, I thought. He was supposed to be my brother. He deserves it the most. I cleared my throat. I dare, I yelled across the small river, interrupting them. They turned to look at me, almost surprised to see me standing on the other shore. So they had forgotten about me. I dare, I started with renewed anger, Teddy, to rope swing across the creek and land on this side. There was silence as, in tandem, all three looked up at the rope hanging from the tree above them. During the summer, we would take turns swinging on it and cannonballing into the water, and if you pushed off the tree hard enough, you could actually make it to the other side of the creek. I'd seen my brother do it many times. Teddy's eyes got wide, and he looked at me as if I'd sentenced him to death. Jeff and Mike immediately started prodding him, telling him not to be a wuss. I smiled smugly from the other side of the river. I hoped he'd failed the dare. It'd be just what he deserved. It didn't take much name-calling for Teddy to climb the tree and grab onto the rope. He tested it a few times, then hung on it with all his weight. It held like it always had. When I get over there, I'm going to dare you to do jumping jacks in the middle of the creek, yelled at me. That's when I realized my mistake. If Teddy dared me to do that, I would most certainly wuss out, and then they'd tease me until Easter. I sent up a prayer, silent prayer, up to God that Teddy didn't make it to the other side of the river. On three, Mike yelled to Teddy. I watched Teddy count silently to himself, then push off from the tree as hard as he could. He swung in a long, deep arc, just like he always did. I watched the scene with my fingers crossed, hoping the rope wouldn't go far enough and they would have to land back on the other riverbank. His dare unfulfilled and the game ended. But I could tell immediately that he was going to make it and somberly stepped backward to make room for him to land. And then suddenly, the loudest sound I've ever heard before or since rang through the air like a gunshot. 
Teddy broke through as soon as he hit the ice, and the rope and tree branch followed him down into the darkness below. I felt my feet moving under me as I slipped and slid my way out to where he had gone in, sheer panic, crushing my chest like a vice. All three of us were on our bellies, groping for the angry, jagged hole within ten seconds. We searched the watery void, but all we could feel was the tree branch below us. Within a minute, we couldn't feel anything at all. Our hands and arms had gone numb. Jeff pulled Mike and I to our feet and started running for the sleds. Leave his sled here. We need to get out of here now. I felt cold and dead. I stumbled blindly toward the sound of my cousin's voice. We need to save Teddy. I want Teddy. He's in the ice. You have to get Mom and Dad. But I was blubbering so badly by the end that I doubt they understood a word of it. And despite my slurred protests, I followed them into the woods, confused and cold. But after a while, I couldn't feel the cold anymore. I couldn't feel any pain in my heart or my body. In fact, I couldn't feel anything at all. Mike didn't say a word for the entire walk back, but Jeff went on and on about the plan. We would just say that Teddy decided to go home before us and that he had said he was going to take a shortcut through the woods, the other woods on the far side of the road. I just nodded for a while, even smiled at his plan. God, to this day, I don't know why I smiled. We were almost home by the time I began to process what he was saying. No, I have to tell Dad to save Teddy, I told him. I was surprised by how flat my voice sounded. Mike just kept walking forward in a daze, but Jeff whirled around on me. It's too late to save him, but you can save yourself. It's your fault that this happened because it was your dare. They will take you to jail for murder and put you on death row. It's an open and shut case. You can't tell anyone, ever, anything. And I don't know why I believed him, but I did. The hardest part of the day wasn't watching my brother die or the long, cold walk home. The hardest part, by far, was pretending like nothing was wrong when we got there. What do you mean you haven't seen Teddy? He should have been back by now. He started home an hour before us. I couldn't keep my poker face for very long, though, and I started to cry. My dad thought it was because I was so cold that my skin had begun to turn to white. Search and Rescue searched the wrong woods for the next 24 hours because they believed our story. The Slutting Hill had been crowded that day, but a couple of people were sure they'd seen us there. The day after that, they intended to search the other side of the forest, the side Teddy was actually on, but a blizzard rolled in overnight and that search was called off. My parents were told that wherever Teddy was, he was almost certainly dead. Parents in the neighborhood stopped letting their children play in the woods, even in the summer. My own parents wouldn't let me leave the house for a year. I grew up angry and spiteful. I hated everyone, but no one more than myself. I applied to college just to get away from my parents, whose constant love and support fell vile and wrong to me. I wished they'd have had another kid so they could give their love to someone deserving and stop talking about Teddy all the time. I got into the U of M. My grades sucked and I drank a lot. My parents pressured me to excel since I was their last horse in the race. I never returned their calls or emails. I lived with the guilt. Just barely, but I lived with it. If nothing else, I could take a bit of pride in the fact that I was surviving. Drunkenly one night, I finally told a couple of my close friends about it. They agreed that it wasn't my fault that shit happens. And Teddy wouldn't want me to dwell on it. 
I made the dare, but he climbed the rope. That night was a turning point for me. After being validated by people who actually knew the truth, I cut back on the drinking and I picked up my grades for the last two semesters, and somehow it was enough to graduate. A year later, I got an invitation to an engagement party at my parents' house. Cousin Jeff was getting married to a girl he'd met in the Navy, and I was invited to celebrate their love with them. As much as I always hated going back home, I wanted to support Jeff. Somehow, just knowing that he was living a full life despite our shared burden made me feel hopeful, like I could too. The party was quieter and more reserved than the parties my parents threw when we were kids. They had become less fun since Teddy's death. More refined, more somber. Jeff was quieter than I remembered, too, but he was clearly happy with his new fiancée, who seemed like a very nice girl. And though a wide smile was spread across his face, his eyes betrayed a certain guardedness, especially when he looked at me. I got up the courage to talk to him only once. We shared an awkward hug, and I congratulated him on the engagement, and asked him about his brother. Jeff told me that Mike was addicted to heroin and living in Arizona somewhere. I said that it seemed Mike had never really recovered. Jeff said he didn't know what I was talking about and walked away. I spent the rest of the party hugging relatives, making small talk, and pretending to drink. Sobriety is suspect in my family. After a while, I went outside to take in a cigarette and a moment of peace, and in the secrecy of the autumn air, I started to cry. This party, it should be boisterous and loud. My parents should be lively and laughing. Mike should be running around the party daring people to take mystery shots. I should be cheerfully telling stories from college and talking about my plans for graduate school. And Teddy should be here instead of lying dead at the bottom of a riverbed. I flicked my cigarette under my car and wiped the wetness from my cheeks. I knew what I had to do and where I had to go. I had to see the river that had haunted me since I was nine. Had anyone been back to Rocking Horse Creek? Was Teddy's sled still there? Had they replaced the rope? Had the creek died up? This was my worst fear. It had secrets I didn't want to live to see revealed. I lit another cigarette as I walked and began to list all the reasons that this was a bad idea. I spent the hike either begging myself to find the strength to turn around or begging for the courage to continue on. I arrived at Teddy's grave before I was ready. The creek was loud and the water was moving quickly. Recent rain in the area to blame, no doubt. The rocking horse itself was in bad shape. Only its head was visible above the water now, and it was so rotted you could barely tell what it was anymore. No one had replaced the rope. I sat down next to the creek and took it all in. It was hard to believe this was the same place from which I still woke up screaming. It seemed to have healed since taking Teddy's life. If it could heal, maybe I could heal too. The tree was so full you wouldn't think it ever lost a single branch. The creek innocently bubbled by full of life and vigor. Everything here was so different than I remembered, even the rocking horse. Where the toy had once been cheerful, almost animated, it was now just a morbid, misshapen head. Its eyes were pointed directly at me, and they bore a soulless stare right through me. 
It sent an involuntary shudder through my body, and I turned away from the horse's head in revulsion. I immediately saw what the horse had been looking at, a sliver of red plastic jutting out from the ground behind me. Teddy slid. My reaction was visceral, and I had to lean over and vomit in the grass beside me. It was real. It had happened. Had I been pretending it wasn't real? Was that why I had really come here? To pretend that the past was gone and didn't matter anymore? How could I forget that what this place really was? I stumbled to my feet and began walking down the riverbank away from the buried sled, pausing every few feet to dry heave. I just wanted to get away from it, that thing that was all that remained of my brother. Everything that used to be Teddy laid at the bottom of the river now. I pulled a cigarette from my pack with a shaking hand. As I tried to light it, I tripped over something and fell forward, my cigarette rolling down the riverbank and into the water. It was a rope, and I knew right away that it was Teddy's rope. I kicked it away from me. It was worse than the sled. If I had anything left to throw up, I know I would have. The end of the rope lay deteriorating on the riverbank, with the length of it disappearing into the murky water of the river. And maybe I am morbid, or sick, or crazy, but I suddenly decided that I wanted to know, I wanted to see. I crawled over to it and picked it up. I felt just as it did all those summers ago when I used to swing from it into the water as Teddy clapped from the shoreline. I began to pull the rope out of the river. The water was fast-moving and the rope was heavy. The creek didn't want to give up its secrets so easily, and it rebelled against my efforts. Still, I pulled harder. Just as I felt I was coming to the end of it, something long and thin breached the surface of the river. I saw it for only a moment before the rotted rope snapped and it sank back into the dark abyss. I almost dove in after it, but as I stood on the riverbank, my brain screaming at me, I realized what I'd almost done. What if that was Teddy? Would I want to see? Breaking from my trance, I hurled the rest of the rope into the river and fled into the woods. My lungs struggled to draw breath, and the trees began to spin around me. I anxiously lit another cigarette and let the shudders rack through my body as I waited for the nicotine to calm me. I stood there in the middle of the woods, the rope, twenty feet behind me at the bottom of the river, and took short drags off my cigarette. And when my breathing had become bearable again, I felt someone watching me. It was Teddy, of course. He sat with his back against a tree, faded purple parka still bright in the mid-afternoon sun, and in some parts bleached almost as white as his bones. Ripped foil from an opened hand-warmer pocket was clutched in his hand, still remaining after all these years. He stared at me, accusingly. The deep eye sockets of his skull were somehow not empty. Instead, they held a knowing consciousness that he knew what we had done. We knew we'd left him to die. But we hadn't known that, Teddy. We hadn't. We didn't know you crawled out of the river. We didn't know you were freezing to death as we ran home to bury our secrets. We would have saved you, Teddy, if we had known. You know that. We would have saved you. I yelled at this skeleton in my head, or out loud, I'm not entirely sure, but Teddy just sits there staring at me, thirty yards from the rocking horse, twenty yards from the broken tree. 
and I know he'll sit here forever because Jeff and Mike don't need to know that our sins are far more terrible than we'd ever thought. I know it's only my burden to bear, and I can tell, as he watches me in the fading sunlight, that Teddy agrees. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed Rocking Horse Creek by Rebecca Klingle, also known as C.K. Walker, as performed by yours truly. Up next, we've got one final round of frightening fiction for you. Our next terrifying tale comes to us from author Andrew Harmon. In it, a security guard tasked with guarding a zoo during the nighttime hours begins to notice the animals behaving strangely. Can he and his co-worker, Hector, do anything to stop what's going on on the doorstep before it's too late. Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you Lions and Tigers and Bears. The night started so smoothly. It was Tamale Tuesday and Hector's week to bring the chow. Hector's shift started an hour earlier than mine, so I didn't see him when I passed Steve at the time clock just inside the security shack. Steve punched out and tossed me his keys, not bothering to update me on anything. It's a zoo, and we're here after hours, so what could he update me on anyway? Maybe the hyenas were looking suspicious? When didn't they? I grabbed a walkie-talkie, number eight, from the cabinet, and checked the batteries. The static hissed when I tapped the talk button. The beam of my mag light swept across the open doorway of the security shack. You out there, Hector? I spoke into the walkie number eight. Roger that. Hector was Guatemalan, so the TH and that took on more of a duh sound under the influence of his accent. You got the goods? I asked. Break room fridge. Polo and green chilies tonight, Holmes. You're the man, Hector, I grinned. What's your 1020? Lizard hut, Hector replied. All right, I'm going to walk uh, grasslands. The staff entrance was on the north side of the park, same side as general admission, only about 200 yards further west. So when I left the small square office, I almost immediately plunged into the winding paths of the aquatic center. The prominent sound rising above the chirp of crickets and the lilt of the wind rustling through the path side gardens was the waterfall in the polar bear exhibit. 
A rush of blue water raced off the high faux cliff above the enclosure and crashed into the thirty-foot depths of the polar bear's pool. The polar bears were among few animals allowed to sleep outside. After hours, when we guards worked, the majority of the animals were bedded down in sleeping compartments at the rear of the enclosures. As I passed by the pen, I could hear Sasha, the largest of the three polar bears, snuffing and grumbling in her sleep. I paused to lean against the railing of the enclosure. Jackson and Rory, the younger bears, sat on their hinds, flanking the sleeping Sasha, and stared off into the night. Their heads turned slowly, small ears flicking around at the slightest noise. Now, I'm not an animal keeper, but I can tell when something is spooked. And these two looked pretty spooked. Probably just saw raccoons scavenging around in the trash cans. If there's one thing to know about ferocious predators, it's that once they've grown accustomed to captivity, well, they kind of become big pussies. I walked past the empty stonescape of the penguin exhibit, past the calm pool where the sea lions spent their afternoons rolling around on their bellies and clapping their fins for the children, hoping for just one more trick and one more fish from the trainer's hands. Past that was the large dome of the aquatic center where the zoo patrons descended into the underground tunnels to view the penguins and walrus and polar bears diving down into the deep water. I knew that Steve always does a walkthrough of the dome before ending his shift, so I don't bother patrolling the interior too often on my shift. The doors were locked after hours anyway, so no one could sneak in. I came out of the aquatics area onto the main walkway, which zipped up the center of the zoo and split into two paths at the concessions area. Here, all of the large umbrellas were folded down and stuck up like spikes out of their centers of round white tables. I took the path to the left and of the dips and dots stand toward the grasslands. This path was lined with skinny poplar trees that blinded visitors to the maintenance roads that wound around along the border of the grasslands. Now and then a break in the trees would give me glimpses of the largest exhibit in the zoo. Here, zebras and gazelle roamed freely with cassowaries and bristling porcupines. Since this area was so large and inhabited by multiple species, these animals were allowed to sleep outside as well. I froze in my tracks when I spotted something between the scaggly branches of two browning poplar trees. In one corner of the exhibit, a shadow bolted across the grass. A cassowary let out a shrill shriek nearby, followed by a peculiar clicking sound. I pushed between the two trees, but could go no further than the chain fence that separated the visitor's path from the service road. I had just enough of a view to see two black lumps slumped over near the adjacent edge of the enclosure. One of the shadows lifted its head in my direction, and a pair of burning red eyes reflected back at me. I reached for the maglite at my belt, but by the time I had lifted the beam to illuminate the enclosure, the red-eyed creature had scurried out of sight. Still, the cassowary that had screamed and clicked was sitting in the grass with its legs folded beneath it. At first I thought it was dead, but after a few moments passed, the bird lifted its blue head and stared back at me. It was seemingly unfazed. 
I turned off my flashlight. The cassowary stared at me from the dark field, its eyes shining the same blood red as the creature I hadn't gotten a look at. The piercing crimson gaze made me shiver. I paged Hector on the walkies. These animals have crazy eyes tonight, or is it just me? They're animals, gringo, Hector answered. They all got crazy eyes. I don't know, man. I watched the cassowary stand up as I held down the talk button. It stood tall but did not move. I guess I'm just creeping myself out. Hold me. I just smoked a spliff between the monkey house at the east. Everything's creeping me out right now. Jesus, and you couldn't bother to call me, I said. Sorry, Meagle, only enough for one. I sighed and continued down the path through the grasslands. The slight cloud cover that had been blurring out the full moon receded, and the dark of the park became bright enough for me to see into the enclosures without my flashlight. Like I said, most of them were empty, so my view was mostly of flat, grassy fields, rocks, ferns, and the occasional city squirrel dashing from garden to garden. There was only one other exhibit in grasslands that let the animals roam freely at night, the hyenas. I hated the hyenas. They cackled and colluded as I approached the railing outside the cage. I watched the group of nocturnal miscreants sulking around in the shadows of their enclosure, shoulders slumped, head held low, sniffing the soil and yipping at one another. I leaned against the fence and counted them. One, two, three, four, five, I and six. Hector, I buzzed on walkie number eight. Did they get a new hyena? Shit, if I know, those things freak me out. I didn't usually make a point of counting animals, but overnight security isn't exactly the most exciting career, so you find yourself doing the most mundane things just to pass the time. And I was sure that even last night there had only been five hyenas. The largest of the six was at the back of the enclosure farthest away from me. It slinked along like the others, though its shambling seemed unlike the rest. I couldn't put my finger on why. While the movements of the other five seemed smooth and organic, this larger one shook and trembled. Maybe it was sick. That would explain why the other five would have nothing to do with it. While they charged one another and nipped at each other's hind legs, this one seemed to be kept at arm's length from the rest of the pack. I raised my flashlight and shined it at the hunchback mutts. One at a time, their heads perked up and turned toward the source of the light beam. Their eyes, evolved for night vision, shined green in the light, except for the large one. The large one in the back paid no attention to me, but as its head swept back and forth with each step, its eyes would flash red. Shit! Hector yelped over the walkie-talkie. My body stiffened and I nearly dropped my magnolite. What's going on, Hector? Talk to me. I stepped in horse shit back in the damn stable, man. I slid my flashlight back into its holster on my belt and turned from the hyenas. Clearly there was nothing going on in the grasslands. There was nothing going on anywhere in this park. There never had been and there probably would never be. Steve once caught a couple of teenagers trying to scale the wall into the elephant exhibit. That was about as criminal as the zoo gets. 
As I walked out of the grasslands, I looked back onto the large expanse of green where the zebras and gazelle were kept. In the corner stood the cassowary, in the same spot as when I had first come by. Its red eyes followed me as I passed. It skeeved me the fuck out, and maybe I'm wrong to go to Captain Ahab on a bird, but I wanted to punch it right in its stupid beak. Where the grasslands returned to the head of the main path, I found one of the pretzel carts in the concessions hub had been knocked over. Coarse salt and paper baskets were strewn across the pavement. A stack of napkins was scattering in the wind and were littered all around the picnic tables. Heck, do you stoner, I called to him. Are you trying to steal pretzels? No way, man. My mouth's too dry for pretzels, he joked. Well, you made a damn mess over here at concessions, I said. I am being over to concessions, he replied. You expect me to believe the wind knocked over this cart, I asked. Shit, man, you security, that's your job to figure out. Hector, your security, too. Yeah, right now I'm security over by the farm animals. Your security over by the concessions. I huffed right at the cart and made sure that the folded-up umbrella was held straight in its brace. There was a storage closet between the restrooms, and I went to grab a broom. The salt and the baskets I could handle, but walking around to pick up all those napkins was going to be a headache. Well, nonetheless, I did it. What else is there to do? It was a solid twenty minutes before I was even close to done, when a roar shook the park. It was coming from the jungle section. I dropped the broom immediately and jogged off in the direction of the sound. Through my heavy breath, I managed to call out to Hector on the walkie. You hear that? Yeah, you going to check it out, Gringle? On the way, I answered. I'll meet you there, Hector said. I followed the sound to its source in the tiger's cage. The yellow cone of my magnolite combed through every corner of the enclosure, but it was empty. Nonetheless, fierce snarling and the sound of gnashing teeth split the silence of the jungle district. Hector came walking by briskly up the path a few minutes later, but I had nothing to tell him. I just shrugged and gestured toward the tiger pen. They fucking in there or something, Hector asked. Sounds rough, I said. Hector climbed up onto the middle rung of the fence and leaned against the iron bars of the cage, reaching his flashlight into the cage. This was something we were told to never do, but I didn't stop him. His own flashlight beam joined mine in the search and eventually came to rest on the black hole at the back of the den. This is a small area in which the animals bedded down at night, but it should have been locked. Instead, the door had swung open and the feral bedlam was emanating from inside. Should we close it? Hector said from atop the railing. I ain't going in there, I said. I turned off my flashlight and grabbed my scratch pad to make a note. I'd let the morning folks know about the unsecured tiger den, but there wasn't shit I could do about it tonight. I was in the middle of scribbling the word tiger when a familiar sound tickled in my ear. Clicking, like an insect's mandibles patiently clapping over a meal. Hector started to climb down back to the path and was about to say something when the ferns in the tiger's den clambered. Both our heads swiveled around in time to see an inky blur race across the enclosure towards us, its black body permeating the iron bars like murky water through a grate, and dart just over Hector's head. Hector cursed. 
My head snapped around to follow the shadow as it disappeared into the cinnamon trees across the path. Their scraggly heads flailed and the trunks shook, sending down a flurry of flaky tree bark and filled the air with the scent of spice. What the fuck was that? Hector cried. He was rubbing the side of his head as if he had been slugged. No clue, man, I said. Let's get out of here. We didn't leave immediately, though. We were frozen in place, watching the stillness of the cinnamon trees until we were certain we were alone. We stuck together for the remainder of the night, patrolling only near the entrance of the zoo, and sinking most of our time into recounting the tale to one another in the guard shack. We hadn't even touched the tamales that Hector's wife had sent him. Just before dawn, an hour after Hector went home, I was standing by the time clock with my punch card. I peered out from the guard shack and into the aquatic center. Sasha and Jax were nowhere to be seen in the polar bear pool, but Rory sat right where I had seen her at the beginning of the shift, resting on her haunches in the middle of the island rock, staring at the sky. I squinted to get a better look. Rory's head turned slowly to meet my gaze, and her eyes were piercing red. The following night, Steve tossed me his keys and pointed to a memo hanging on the wall of the guard shack. I nodded and grabbed walkie-talkie number eight from the rack, checking the batteries before I strapped it to my belt. It was a few minutes before ten o'clock, but Steve punched out and took off without a word. He seemed tense. I stood in front of the memo by the door and expected the worst. It read, Attention, all employees. Several of the animals have been acting strangely today, and we ask for your assistance in making them as comfortable and stress-free as possible. A number of animals in the grasslands, jungle, and aquatic sections have refused food and any interaction. Some factors that could create these issues include stress, sickness, and abuse. We ask all employees, regardless of job title, to keep an eye out for any agitators that could be inducing or exacerbating these episodes. Please report any strange findings to park management and escort belligerent guests out of the park if you witness any abuse of our animals. Night staff, please refrain from the use of flashlights around the nocturnal animals and keep cell phone ringers silenced. We appreciate your understanding in this manner and thank you for your cooperation. Management. Hector and I knew that something strange was going on, but what could we report? Yes, Mr. Manager, we believe that a red-eyed shadow monster is attacking the animals. No, it does not unlock the cages. It can move through the bars. Oh, yes, of course, I am sane, sir. I set my flashlight down on the desk. I wouldn't be able to use it anyway. Leaning back, I peered out the narrow doorway at Aquatics. There sat Rory in the center of the rock island parked on her rear with her head turned towards me. Her glowing red eyes blinked twice, then turned back toward the blank sky. Hector, I said into the walkie. Hey there, gringo, he replied, his voice sullen. How's it going? I asked. Half a minute must have passed before he responded. Not good. These animals are acting weird, like you said, man. Even the lizards have red eyes. You at the lizard hut? Yeah, Hector said. I grabbed a pen off my desk and my notepad. If these animals were one by one being turned into red-eyed monsters, I was going to at least make a note of it. 
I started in aquatics, sauntering slowly around the meandering pathways. Item one on the list. Polar bears times three, affected times one. I stopped by their pool and leaned over the railing to make out the figures in the dark. Though Rory sat center stage on the island, Sasha and Jax were huddled on the opposite rock ledge, avoiding her. None of the three made a peep. All I heard was the waterfall rushing off the rocks and churning up the otherwise smooth surface of the pool. The rest of the above-ground pens were empty this time of night, but to be sure my count was accurate, I would have to go into the dome. The keys jingled on my hip with every step I took toward the iron double doors to the dome. It had been a while since I had went inside, so it took me a few tries to find the correct key. Once I entered, I descended the wide flight of stairs into the underground tunnel, all of it completely dark apart from a few maintenance lights in the corners of the rooms. The first room I entered in the dome was a large round area, the center of which held a 20-foot-long shallow pool. Small sharks, maybe a foot and a half at their largest, circled and weaved under the water. The dark blue walls of the dome were covered in paintings of sharks showing their comparative sizes to varying species and also to the average human. The average human painting stood in front of the shark-sized chart, waving nonchalantly despite the stack of eight shark species lined up beside them. Nothing seemed to be out of the ordinary here, so I continued into a tunnel toward the next room. This area was slightly smaller and its walls were lined with tanks. Octopi, jellyfish, eels, anglerfish, you name it. It was hovering around in its own personal aquarium, where columns of little bubbles danced up from the rocky floor toward the water's surface far above. Three glass pillars stood in the center of the room, illuminated from the floor and by the ceiling by purple and blue LEDs. In these pillars waved stalks of seaweed and tiny seahorses congregated amongst their leaves. I stood in the center of the three pillars and studied the miniature seahorses carefully. I reached a single finger to the glass as if to tap on a rim of their world when a loud crash in the next room made me stiffen and suck in a sharp breath. I darted down to the next tunnel and plunged into complete darkness of the next room. For some reason, the dim yellow maintenance bulbs had burned out and all I could hear in the opaque black was the sound of aquarium filters gurgling in the walls. An eerie chill crept up my spine. My fingers were trembling. I felt a presence in the room. Now, of course, there were undoubtedly many presences in the room, being that I stood in a zoo full of loving creatures, but this was different. This was distinct. There was a chilling presence, and I felt its eyes on me. I turned around and round frantically, searching for the gaze that I knew would confront me. I grabbed my walkie and pushed the talk button, but the static on the speaker cut in and out. The weak signal was not enough to penetrate to the surface from the depths of the dome. My breathing was ragged. Why didn't I bring Hector along? I resolved to retreat to the previous room to recuperate in the light until I either gathered the courage to continue or cowered back up the stairs. But as I turned, I was greeted by red eyes floating in the dark a short six feet from my left side. They burned bright. They were unwavering. 
They stared through my meeting gaze and into the back of my skull. My spine calcifying into a stiff rod and my neurons firing off alternating sparks of adrenaline. Fight, flee, fight, flee, fight, flee, move, do something. But I was frozen, staring into those red eyes. They drifted closer. Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata played in the key of shitty midi player from my pocket. My cell phone buzzed and growled. I'd forgotten to silence the ringer. As the harsh, tiny tones shattered the silence of the room, it was met with a raspy hiss. The red eyes reeled back. I took off in a flash down the next hallway, feet slapping on the carpet toward the light of the next maintenance lamp. The hissing settled behind me, but I did not feel I was being pursued. I plunged into the next tunnel and took up my phone to answer. It was Hector. When he didn't get a response from me on the walkie-talkie, he started to freak out and called my cell instead. Thank God he did. You've got to get over to the aviary, man, Hector said. He sounded desperate. Meet me here. I told him I would and sprinted through the rest of the tunnels. Terror unfolded with each step. I passed by the large glass window in front of the macaroni penguins. The whole dozen of them were standing motionless on the rocks. Their eyes a piercing red and their heads turned towards the ceiling. In the next room I could see the pair of walruses floating above me at the surface, their heads protruding from the water and tilted to the sky. I burst out of the exit of the dome, grasping and gasping for fresh air and stared at the moon from the comfort of what light it could give. The darkness was cloistering. The silence of the zoo truly petrified me for the first time in my years working security. You coming, man? Hector said. I heard a shrill commotion in the background. On my way, I said, and unlocked myself from fear. The aviary was near the lizard hut, just down the path from aquatics. Before I continued, I grabbed my notebook and jotted down. Penguins, all affected. Walruses, all affected. I was jogging through the zoo by this point. To the right of the path was a short hill upon which sat three tortoises, all renowned for being over 80 years old. Older, in fact, than the zoo itself. All three of them stood motionless on their stubby legs, their heads raised feebly towards the sky, and their eyes shining that same haunting red. As I neared the aviary, I could hear, already, why Hector had called me over. The birds were flipping the fuck out. The squawking and screeching and shrieking rose to such a shrill cacophony that I almost had to cover my ears to stop them from ringing. Hector waved his arm in a broad arch from the front to the mesh coliseum. Behind him, leafless trees reached up a tangled crosshatch of branches. Ropes hung down from the branches, dangling down bird feeders stuffed with seeds and dried fruits. There was a smell of death that faintly irradiated from inside the aviary. This was the odor of dead rodents which had been torn to shreds and picked clean of meat by the hawks and falcons that shared the same enclosure. Look, Hector pointed to towards the fifty-foot curved ceiling of the wire dome. A circus of birds were wheeling about and flailing against the ceiling. They were dashing themselves against the wire cage. I watched as a hornbill flapped its wings feverishly, swooped down in a tight arch and veered back upwards towards the sky. It smashed into the wire mesh with a thud and stuck there, wings thrashing desperately in a ball of shed feathers. What are they doing, man? 
Hector asked, his voice cracking. He may have been crying, but it was too dark to tell. They're trying to kill themselves or something. I had a hunch. I backed up far enough that I could get a shallower angle looking at them, and sure enough, the panicked bird's eyes were alight with a fiery crimson. I sat down right there on the pavement and stared at my shoes. Hector threw his arms out to his side, wondering what the fuck I was doing. He said something, but the words were lost in the racket of bird cries. They're possessed, I muttered. What? Hector asked and came close. They're fucking possessed! I nearly shouted the words. By what? Hector asked. I don't know, man, I said. Whatever the fuck it was we saw last night come out of the tiger's den. I pulled out my notepad and updated the count. Tortoises times three, birds, several. I read the list to Hector. He had a few that he had found. Crocodiles, all affected. Horses, all affected. Hyenas, all affected. And that was just the animals that were left outside at night. Who knew how long the list would grow if we ventured into the dens where the animals slept after hours? Hector helped me back to my feet, and we agreed to return to the guard shack to cower in the safety of our office until dawn. No longer bothering to count animals to investigate the red-eyed shadow that plagued the zoo. Once we returned to the guard shack, though, an idea sprung up. I swung open the equipment closet beside the walkie-talkie rack and pulled down an old trail cam from the top shelf. It was nothing fancy, just an old motion sensor camera with night vision that we had used a few years back to capture a particularly cunning escaped python. What are you going to do with that? Hector asked. Find out what the fuck we saw last night, I said. What had been possessing all these animals and causing them to go all crazy with the creepy eyes? We agreed that would need bait. We would need an animal that had not already been affected by... Well, whatever it was, had been running amok around the park. By this point, we couldn't name any that were left outside at night that hadn't already been attacked. Hector scratched his head. He suggested we take one of the inside sleeping animals out. But what animal would be tame enough for two night security guards to lead out into the open? Half an hour later, we had the trail cam set up in the southwestern corner of the zoo. The farm animals... In the center of an intersection where two of the pathways met, Hector stood with a ten-foot length of rope, the other end of which was looped around the neck of Catherine, the spotted cow. Fuck this, man. Why do I gotta be the bait? Hector said into the talkie. I was sitting in the office watching the trail cam through the computer monitor. I answered, You're not the bait. Catherine is. This thing is going after animals, not us. You sure, man? Hector asked, his voice sullen. Shh, I said. The trail cam had a small microphone, and I heard a strange sound approaching. On the monitor, Hector turned this way and that way, desperately trying to find out where the noise was coming from. It was the slow clip-clop, clip-clop of hooves on the cement. With every few steps, a dull bell would sound. Clip-clop. Clop, dong, clip, clop, clip, clop, dong. The fuck is that? Hector whined into the walkie. It sounds like, I strained my eyes trying to see something in the grainy night vision, a cow. Behind Hector, a bulky shadow emerged from the darkness of the path. Clip, clop, dong, clip, clop, clip. 
Hector was still twisting all around in search of the noise, but I could see it clearly in the splotchy green night vision. It was, in fact, a cow. It's a cow, Hector, I said. A what? he asked. That was the last question I heard him mutter before the bovine shadow behind him erupted. Its bulky round body burst into a flurry of flailing tendrils. They slithered across the ground, the tips of them raised like the poised head of cobras. And from the center of the miasma, a pair of eyes flared bright. I heard Hector scream. The cow wailed. The black swarm engulfed them both, tendrils of shadow whipping the air. Hector cried out for help. Catherine's hooves stomped feverishly against the concrete. Then, click, 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 the clicking started. The amorphous mass of black shivered and pulsed. I grabbed my flashlight and flew off in a sprint from the office. The night air whizzed by my ears, deafening me to the sound of chirping crickets. The crash of the waterfall diving down into the polar bear pool. The sound of my own boots clapping on the ground. I wound my way through the aquatics up the main path, split off to the right at the dip and dot stand, and burst through the wrought iron archway at the entrance of the farm animals. In the center of the intersection where we set up the camera, Hector and Catherine were standing, untouched by the shadows I'd seen on the monitor. Hector, I called out. I got no response. You okay, Heck? I asked. Silence. I circled around the edges of the pavement, keeping my distance. As I rounded in front of Hector, my heart stopped. He and Catherine stood motionless together. Their heads were tilted back. Flaming red radiated in their eyes. Oh no, Hector, I moaned. This could go on no longer. I grabbed my cell phone and proceeded to dial 911. I had no idea what was wrong with Hector, but maybe a hospital could do something for him. Maybe it was just some new illness that jumped species. Maybe it was a parasite. The phone rang, and a voice answered, asking me what my emergency was. But I could not answer, because above me the clouds had parted like the Red Sea, and from behind them shined such a brilliant light that I couldn't help but stare in awe of their pulsating glow. A ring of them spun and danced in the skies, red lights glimmering like sirens. I glanced over at Hector and Catherine. The red in their eyes was flashing, on, off, on, off. Their eyes blinked like a Morse code, as if they were communicating with the dancing lights in the skies. I looked around me at the park. Red glows were flashing in unison from everywhere inside the zoo. I backed away from Hector and the cow cautiously. What do I remember next? Not much. An explosion of light. The sound of objects whirring by at high speeds. The smell like when something gets caught in a vacuum and burns out the motor. Then Don, waking up on the cold pavement, trying to explain to the GM where all his fucking animals went, explaining to Hector's wife over the phone that he probably wouldn't be coming home. I remembered the bewildered stares and awkward silence I was greeted with whenever I tried to explain what had happened. But most of all, I remembered that last moment before the flash when I glanced down at Hector and his head turned to me, and his red eyes, glowing, blinked twice, and he smiled. 
I hope you enjoyed Lions and Tigers and Bears by Andrew Harmon, as performed by yours truly. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this bonus episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark, part of a new series in which I share a handful of the creepy tales from my extensive audio archive with you each and every Wednesday. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please... Take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear more content from my archive as well as premium extended editions of my regular episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube... You can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Chiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014, and you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Chiry. Until next time, stay spooky and get some sleep. Again. <laughs>
to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.